Meditations with Ryan Smallmack. Happy February 14th, everybody, and welcome to episode 15 of Meditations with Ryan Zlomak. If this is your first time listening to the show, I just want to welcome you with open arms. Happy Valentine's Day. This is a show all about making space for conversation so that we can learn from the people around us, see what stories are just floating in the air, and ensure that we are gravitating toward interesting humans. If you're a returner to the show, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Happy Valentine's Day. I appreciate you. I would just throw chocolates your way if there was some way for me to do that through your smartphone or computer or car ride or whatever you're listening to this uh, in. But sadly, we'll have to wait for some sort of uh, giveaway in the future. This episode features Daniel Spoiler, who is the founder of the Project Pinball Charity. As I was thinking about the fact that this episode would be launching on Valentine's Day and just considering what we tend to focus on on Valentine's Day, which is, you know, oh my God, I need to demonstrate that I, uh, I, I care about the people in my life by buying them trinkets and toys and candy, when really it should be a time for us to just take a step back and say, you know what, like, how am I helping the world around me? And I think Daniel Spoiler is somebody who who has that constant reflection. It's just great to learn from. If you're unfamiliar with Project Pinball, it's a charity that puts pinball machines in children's hospitals and Ronald McDonald houses and any other place where uh, there's a, a demographic of people who are in need of an escape from some sort of trauma that they're going through. I don't want to belabor his story or uh, or... or, or you know, just belittle it. So I'm going to let him tell it in his own words. So without further ado, here is Daniel Spoiler. Daniel, thanks so much for beaming in. Um, and uh, you're, I, I like to think that this episode is bringing sunshine to the Meditations podcast for multiple reasons. One, because we're talking about an organization that I really believe in, but two, because you're set up in Florida and I'm here in upstate New York. Uh, and it, it, tell tell me how the weather is treating you down there. First off, I'm so glad to be here. Um, Thank you for having me on. I was looking forward to this. I was listening to your podcast that you recorded prior in such a uh, great job. So I, you know, uh, offer everybody to go out there and give a listen to your catalog. Um, You did a great job. So thank you for having me. And I was laughing because uh, normally... Florida is known for our sunshine, but it's been overcast the last three days. Um, we had a rainy Christmas, uh, you know, uh, just recently, and I was just waiting for the temperature to fall to see if we would have a white Christmas, but it never happened. But we are fortunate uh, with the weather down here. Uh, originally out of Pittsburgh, I could, uh, you know, I do know what the the scale would be of being cold and not cold. So yeah, Florida's a, a great place to be to to have uh, you know the warmth, maybe not sunshine like today. <laughs> I love it, and I uh, thank you for the kind words about the show. Um, and funny enough, Pittsburgh has popped up as a theme on this show. Uh, there's been multiple episodes with guests from there. Uh, my buddy Dave Foreman is a uh, he's a he's another pinball person. Uh, he's also a food host of a TV show in Pittsburgh. He was on, and then. Uh, there's another, uh, the, my meta episode, podcast about podcasting. Uh, we had another Pittsburgher on. So apparently that's the theme of the show. Maybe Florida will be our next major location. Um, Pittsburgh was a great place to, to grow up. Um, I was born and raised there, and I just loved the city. Uh, it had so much 
deep culture in it that was, uh, you know, uh, decades old that uh, built into these communities. And I just love that. Uh, moving to Florida at an early age is uh, quite a culture shock almost. Yes, you did have um, the beaches that you could go to and uh, the sunshine and water sports, but I really did miss uh, the nuances, the culture that uh, Pittsburgh offered. And plus, uh, you know, sports, you know, uh, the Steelers and, uh, you know, the Pirates and the Penguins. The Penguins, uh, you can't forget hockey. I was going to say, are you still a uh, are you still a diehard uh, Pittsburgh sports fan? I am. When it comes to, uh, I should name it uh, or call it proper, Steelers. You don't call them Steelers. It's uh, the the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's how, uh, you know, Pittsburghese uh, would say it. But I do, uh, I love the, the Steelers, uh, even if they're having an off season. You got to root for the, the black and gold, uh, just like the Penguins. Um, we're fortunate down in my area that uh, the Penguins come to visit um, Tampa Bay, which is a uh, relatively close drive, and then over in Miami as well. So I have a chance to see them twice a year if I uh, have the opportunity to do so. So I love that. I awesome. really well, that's awesome. So you, uh, I also, I just, since we're talking about kindness and care and charity, I mean, Pittsburgh is also the home of Mr. Rogers. And I feel like there's something to be said about just uh, growing up in a place where like it's creating that type of media uh, and then just sort of being surrounded by that is, is probably pretty impactful. Well, Mr. Rogers, uh, what can you say? Uh, such a great influence. And I did not know until I was uh, many years older um, you know, I did not know that he was from the Pittsburgh area, from, you know, um, again, that culture. I just thought uh, everybody across the United States in the world, perhaps at that time when I was young, um, had Mr. Rogers in, in their lives. And not only did I have it in my life uh, growing up, but uh, my my kids had it in their lives as well. It was still relevant and, uh, you know, still fresh. And even though some of the episodes I, you know, uh, I think were pre-recorded, it still had a, a nice, you know, uh, current theme to it uh, still. So uh, the kids just loved him. And what a role model uh, he was for, you know, just giving, uh, you know, strangers kindness i mean it's just amazing absolutely and this will uh this will air uh at, at the time of this airing christmas will have been several months ago but uh i just got a mr rogers book for christmas so this is all coming full circle which is really nice um yeah uh, i am mr rogers if anybody's interested by brad Meltzer and chris eliopoulos really cool book about uh just his upbringing and it's geared towards kids to learn about uh how they can change the world which is neat um but Daniel, I want to, you know, before we jump into Project Pinball, I want to know a little bit uh, just about your your sort of background. I know that you um, had an entire career in general contracting before you switched to the, um, you know, the, the charity work that you're doing. What uh, what sort of drew you to that industry? Well, for one, um, you know, we grew up in a modest family and I always learned uh, the value of a dollar early. <clears throat> I started off with uh, one paper route. 
when I was 10 years old. And if people are uh, relatively young and they do not know what a paper route is, um, they would drop off a bundle of newspapers at my doorstep and I would assemble them and take them to uh, the different addresses uh, throughout my neighborhood. And I started off with 50 customers and I took over another paper route and added another, uh, I believe, 75 customers and added a third one. So at one point I had over 150 customers, which, you know, for a child of 10, I was making 75 to $100 a week um, just with that off of, uh, you know, what I would make in tips. So, you know, I learned uh, quite early that, you know, uh, to get ahead, you had to to really work for it. So my friends in school always talked about uh, doing construction in evenings and on the weekends. So a good friend of mine asked me to, to join him and his brothers to, uh, you know, work on uh, some drywall related stuff. Uh, it was sanding homes. Uh, the finishers would go in there and I had to the dirty uh, job of going in there and sanding all the joints and making sure um, everything was smooth and pristine. And from there, it grew into actually installing, well, uh, first uh, loading and stocking uh, drywall, which was uh, very physical, uh, very demanding job. We didn't have a boom truck uh, like they have now. It was a flatbed truck and you would have to unload every single piece, which uh, meant that you had to take uh, 200 trips uh, just to stock a home um, on average, 200 pieces. Um, so it taught me, for one, endurance, you know, uh, because you needed to, to have endurance to do that kind of work. And then I started installing. So again, is a lot of uh, physical lifting. And I enjoyed that, I really did. So years later, um, when I moved to Florida, I found out that there was a lot of contractors that were out of state. So you would get hired um, just for that, you know, uh, that job or that, that site, and then they would quickly vanish. And I was promised all kinds of things um, that they would take care of me and, you know, they wouldn't have a job for me and just to find out that it wasn't true. So it really sparked me becoming a uh, working foreman so I can uh, take care of my family and um, workers around me because I, you know, at that point, I just didn't like how things were progressing. I would uh, stand up for myself and other people, um, you know, other friends and workers around me and have a voice in how we were being treated. And we actually formed a unit uh, that if we weren't being treated well, we would walk off um, the job site and just say, okay, we're all done. And you're talking, you know, at one time it was around 15 to 17 people walking off the job. So they really started taking us serious, saying, okay, in um, listening to the small, you know, things that could be done better, um, pay-wise or just treatment in general. 
so from there it it allowed me to to realize that you know i could help other people around me i could elevate um the community by speaking up and you know with similar needs um you know we all wanted to take care of our families and then when the time arose i became a superintendent i became a general superintendent uh, i became a partner uh, for established uh, company that was uh, metal framing and drywall company um so that led into me allowing to you know take care of more and more people the the people the workers the employees um, were my friends and family so by rising higher and higher i could help uh, people elevate underneath me so it just made sense um you know with the the partnership it got strained uh, there was differences in uh, direction um so i wanted to stay more in the the custom uh, side of things and the partners wanted them to grow it uh, really quickly and started taking on a lot more work than i felt comfortable with that we could uh, control so i um, had my you know uh, departure from that retired for probably about a month <laughs> and i had everybody concerned that i was retiring for good but i just needed to reset and focus and i got my general contractor's license so i could work as a contractor in the you know state of florida uh, texas and the carolinas and you know again uh, it allowed me to do what we wanted we focused on on uh, pretty much uh, value build where we would work with a client and qualified them uh, instead of doing you know a lot of bidding for just any kind of uh, contract uh, out there we would be very selective on what we wanted to do and we were fortunate for that once people found out you know how we worked as a company they really enjoyed that and the, the quality that they received they would come back uh, year after year with uh, projects so uh, we had a really nice uh, company um, I still talk to the guys even though um, you know, I sold the company off uh, many years ago. Um, it was a home. It was a home for all of us. And, you know, just to, to make it clear, I was a paid employee, just like uh, everybody. We had profit sharing. So, again, it was my way of trying to elevate uh, people out there. There's a lot of good people out there that are struggling that just need a you know, a hand, um, you know, the belief uh, that they could do it and someone maybe to, um, you know, give them a helping hand, give them that belief and show them uh, a direction that could help. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, being a general contractor was fulfilling and, you know, I just love creating things. I love building things. So I, one thing I'm curious about uh, just in, in that space is like, I'm really, I find that that theme of um, 
it's not only sort of, it's not only a leadership component, but just that idea that like there has to be structures in place to demonstrate to the people that you're leading that you care about them. Um, and that, you know, you're making decisions that uh, that everybody can see that's transparent, that everybody, you know, has access to. And I'm just curious, like when you eventually took over your own company um, and you were sort of, you know, leading the troops and getting things going and, and having these profit sharing models, uh, was that all internally developed? Was that things where you had uh, other sort of sounding boards to go to? Like, how did you pick up those ideas that you wanted to integrate into your business? Oh, that's a, a really deep question there because I didn't have uh, mentors along the way. I was fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, people that did their jobs well. And I had uh, the fortune to have people that didn't do their jobs well. <laughs> um, and I say that in light because there's a lot of people that you can learn what not to do. And that's as important as learning, you know, what you need to do. Um, if you could watch someone else fail at something, um, you know, I think it's a learning lesson for everybody paying attention, just not the uh, person going through it. And then you get to see, you know, how they regroup and come back at it. So I didn't really have a mentor in my life and say, here's the road that you need to take. It was more of, you know, here's what felt comfortable. I needed it to feel comfortable. I didn't want to be in a place that was uh, something foreign to my beliefs. Um, I never in my life ever worked for uh, contracted money. Um, it was important to, obviously, as a businessman, you're looking at, you know, can the, the, the company make money like it should. And that's you know, a different thing. But at the same point, I never said that this worth is of, you know, of money. Um, it was more of, you know, what can we succeed with this? Uh, can we learn as a company? Uh, we would always take on new challenges and uh, were new to us. Um, you know, we were never afraid of that we would always rise to it because we knew that it would better ourselves, uh, a learning experience. So, you know, I wish I had a mentor. I think the, the road would have been a lot easier. Um, I did have sounding boards, uh, people in the industry, like I said, I respected and uh, would learn. I had a gentleman, his name was James and you know, I'm not sure what his job description was, honestly. He was uh, like the go-to guy if uh, you needed help with something special. Um, you would go to him and he would be the troubleshooter. And he was such a, a uh, guru on so many things. Um, he knew um, about the, the fire uh, marshal regulations. Uh, the fire code and he would know these books there was uh, three orange books that i would carry around uh, just for reference and he would know these books inside and out so much that the fire marshals would um 
you know, ask him questions. When they showed up on site, they would ask him for his input. And, you know, I'm saying this because he was, you know, a very big part of my life. Um, I would have him helping me, um, you know, on buildings at that time, maybe doing the layout, I would have to lay out a five-story building and he would uh, come in and say, you don't need me here. And I would just say, yeah, but, uh, you know, I love having you here and I always learned something. And, you know, so, yeah, I would have to say, you know, I did have a mentor, um, you know, it was for a short period of time, but he never, uh, when I left that company, he, we would talk often, um, you know, several times a month, just call each other and, you know, even if I had a problem on another job that uh, I wanted his opinion on, he would always be there. So, but other than that, not really. You know, uh, Florida, um, I don't want to say it as darkly as this, but, uh, you know, it was a dark time for Florida construction. There was a lot of uh, misgivings Uh there's a lot of people coming into Florida that were not licensed and they would take uh, deposits and just quickly leave um, as well. So there was a lot of, uh, it was like the badlands down here and working for people like that, you had to really make sure that you got paid uh, on Fridays as well. I remember uh, many a times uh, just sitting at the office of these uh, buildings waiting to get paid before I would go back to work for the next week um, because you never knew if uh, you were going to be able to receive a paycheck for the work you already did. And it was, it was you know, more of that teaching me um, that, again, if people are coming to work, you want to make sure that you treat them res with respect because these guys are artisans. If you treat them that way, um, if you give them, you know, a task for them to rise to, they will. But, uh, you know, to the other side of that coin, uh, so to speak, you need to make sure that they understand that they're going to get paid uh, for what they're worth and on time because they're there to take care of their family. And the last thing that I wanted them to be worried about is, you know, how much they're getting paid for the job at hand. I wanted them to, to focus on the cre uh, creativity, you know, bringing that artisan uh, to the highest level and doing the best that they could. So if you could take out them thinking about, you know, if they're going to get paid on Friday or not, um, it allowed them the freedom to, to really enjoy, you know, where they were at. Yeah, I there's two two points there. I just wanna I wanna just hone in on for a second because I think it's really important. I I can't tell you how much joy it brought me to hear you say uh, sometimes it's important to learn what not to do from people. Um, I tell my students that all the time. Like when you know we're always so focused on uh, just as people, like oh this person's so good at that. They're so good at that. They're so good at that. We never or we then then we're focused on how we feel when we're treated improperly by somebody or something, but we very rarely go through and look at somebody's, uh, I don't know, 
poor, poor manner or attitude or the way in which they handle a job. And we think to ourselves, number one, my interaction with them is temporary. And two, um, if I can not be like that, if I can flip that around, if I can figure out how I can be the antithesis of this person's behavior, um, good things will happen. And I always, I'm so glad to hear you just say that because I think that uh, to me, I, most of my successes have come from like being in a, in a place working a job or something and then saying, eh, this is what's not working. If I was to do this on my own, here's what I do. And then when some opportunity of leadership presents itself, you're already prepared. You don't have to rebuild everything from the ground up because you're, you know, you're ready for it. You've, you've had those experiences, you've mentally processed. Um, and then the other thing too, is just, I love your comment about um, <clears throat> making sure that you can be the one who's sort of preventing the secondary stresses from going to your artisans. Uh, because I, I oftentimes see like the greatest way to ruin something good is to let everybody else share in the anxiety <laughs> of what's not working. Um, and if you could move past that, just like remarkable things will come. Well, uh, for the one, um, the first thing that you said was, you know, about learning what to do and what not to do. Um, I think a lot of people are critical on, you know, uh, what people could do better, but they don't take it to heart and say, I could do better. Um, I don't know. I think it's part of self-reflection. You have to, to be the best person that you can. And, you know, I'm not getting up here and preaching that I'm perfect. Oh, God, no. You know, that's not even close. Um, but I do try to learn from my failures and come back from them, um, you know, because I have failures in my life, uh, just like everyone out there. You know, I don't believe that anybody has a perfect life out there, but a lot of times you don't hear people talk about their failures. So, you know, I think <clears throat> we got to learn as we go and, uh, try to continue uh, to get better and better. Um, and, you know, um, I do have a family and I tried to be the, the best father that I could. Um, and that might be a, a different subject that we want to touch upon. But, you know, uh, I didn't really have a role model in my life. So I had to treat my kids as I wanted to be treated when I was younger. And I tried to be the, the best father that I could be. And I know that, you know, I succeeded as well as I failed at times. Um, but I always try to, to get better. And now I have grandkids that, you know, I could see uh, my role in their lives as well. Um, you know, it's outside being the parent. It's actually, you know, kind of uh, a different role that, Again, I wasn't sure, you know, how to take on and, you know, I just uh, treat my grandkids how, you know, uh, I see that they want to be treated. And, you know, I'm, I'm loving this growth. I love, uh, I love to continue with that. Well, I want to um, I want to come back to your, uh, your your family dynamic a little bit later, but I want to jump into Project Pinball because I think it's, um, you know, I think it's really interesting to take your leadership skills and your sort of knowledge of systems and then applying it to a uh, to a 
to a charity. Um, what what uh, what grew your initial interest in pinball? What made you uh, you know drawn to it? As I'm looking. I get the luxury of being able to see you, Daniel, and I can see all these beautiful pinball machines in your periphery. Uh, what got you into uh, into Silverball? What got you excited about it? Um, it's funny that you see them here in my office um, because it's part of my belief, which I'll get to. Um, but back when I was an adolescent child, um, pinball was provident. It was... Uh, just located everywhere that you would look it was in the the 7-elevens it was in the pizza huts it was in restaurants and in uh pubs and bowling alleys and on the boardwalk down in uh new jersey Um, they were just everywhere they had arcades that were uh, humming with the sounds of you know space invaders and pac-man and they had pinball machines there as well so uh I knew the value of my quarter. I uh, I was really bad at the video games. I was not one that enjoyed Space Invaders. Um, I just didn't like it. Uh, you would have to start off on level and achieve, and you know, I just didn't have the patience to, you know, really perfect that. So I wanted something more random and something that was more physical that I can control, like a pinball machine. I remember uh, vividly playing Firepower, uh, which was a Williams game, and um, Blackout. And I remember having more control. I was nudging the game, moving the game, and feeling that I had better value for my quarter. So with that, uh, you know, instilled in me... um, you know, throughout my adolescence and teenage years, when I raised, uh, started raising family and having um, my son was born, I walked away from that. Um, I wanted to focus everything on to um, my family and uh, doing the best that I could because, again, I didn't have certain components in my life and I wanted to dedicate myself to my, my uh, family. So I stepped away for uh, from that for um, probably about 18 years. Um, the last game just on, it was at my son's birthday party. It was at a bowling alley and they just happened to have a pinball machine there. And it was uh, actually medieval madness. And I remember that because I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, in my absence, uh, pinball has morphed and changed into these uh, highly, uh, you know, mechanical games, a lot of great engineering um, in there. But it wasn't until my kids uh, were leaving, uh, they just graduated, heading off to college and to uh, uh, the military service, that I found myself lacking a, you know, hobby outside of you know, my time uh, dedicated to my family needs. So I uh, quickly found, uh, you know, some pinball machines that I never seen before. And my first machine was uh, Theater of Magic by Bally, Bally Williams. And it quickly broke down within six months of me owning it. So that started my second phase of my pinball passion was not only 
playing pinball, but it started as restoring and fixing machines. And as a engineer, um, in engineer's mind, it just was a super fascination for me. As soon as I lift the play field, I seen all the chaos of, uh, you know, the miles of wiring and all the, uh, you know, uh, electrical coils underneath there. It just was a super spark of fascination. Uh, so years later, uh, the charity was founded on, you know, certain things. One is when I would uh, play pinball and I would work on pinball, I felt that my stress of the day would just melt away. Um, it was singular focus. I could, you know, not think about uh, the problems of the world while I was playing pinball. So when there was this idea of a charity uh, happening in a children's hospital or this offering for it to happen, um, I just used my reflection on how it made me feel. Um, and then we started getting all this great testimony from um, key people like child life specialists. They're the ones that monitor the well-being of the, the patients, um, you know, the emotional, physical, mental well-being of the patient and their family. So what better uh, inputs could you have than a person that uh, is, you know, they have that job description. So they started sharing with us, uh, you know, how beneficial and therapeutic a pinball machine could be in a hospital setting for a child in their whole family. Not only the patients, but you're talking the siblings are going through the this illness and the whole family unit is, and you're talking parents and grandparents. So <clears throat> with that being of my past, I can combine all of that um, as well. Plus uh, my son was diagnosed with uh, leukemia when he was 14 years old. And at that time I was part of the partnership and I, I, you know, got a call in the middle of my day saying that, um, you know, this is a lot more severe and it could be leukemia. I called up the partners and said, uh, you know, I'm not sure when I'm coming back. I need to take care of this. And my whole life uh, just came to a screeching halt. It was a singular focus on learning everything that I could on leukemia. I knew it was a form of cancer, but I didn't know much more than that and it was before you could just google search stuff you had to really uh, search for things out there so with that also it gave me an understanding how you know illness of a a son could you know really affect your family dynamic and you know, your priorities and focus. Um, so it allows me to a small degree to, you know, kind of understand what uh, parents are going through in a hospital setting. I might not know exactly what they're going through, but I have my experience where I could relate 
And there were certain things that were lacking, you know, in a children's hospital. I'm not trying to be negative in a way, but um, it's a positive thing that I see growth in all those years to what I see now. And I think that's that brings me great joy knowing that there's support for these families. There's uh, these people out there that um, are helping the family go through this troubling time. And that's why the charity wants to be a part of that. Um, we want to add our dynamics of what we see with the pinball machine to help with that benefit in the, the therapeutic values that it could bring for this this family yeah let me i just want to i want to just drop a few uh a few data points because i think it's important so your you know your charity uh is is project pinball uh and it focuses it's you guys have been around since 2011 um and you uh help coordinate not just the implementation of amusements equipment in this case, pinball machines, uh, into children's hospitals, Ronald McDonald houses, places where this type of, uh, I'd almost call it like flow state therapy, the ability to to have some sort of uh, amusement that will, will, will take your mind off of things and allow you to, you know, some form of escapism. Um, but uh, you, it's you've managed to to do this all over the country. Um, Twenty seven states at this point have uh, equipment that has been donated by Project Pinball. Uh, there's sixty five children's hospitals with uh, seventy machines that have been uh, instated, which is amazing. Um, and you've got uh, what over a hundred volunteers in total that you guys coordinate to be able to. Um, not only get in there and maintain machines, but also just help with fundraising um, and, and getting the word out and things like that. Uh, so I, I guess the reason I wanted to just lay that framework out there is because I think that, you know, when people hear like, oh, they put pinball machines in children's hospitals, it's a uh, great. Cool. Like that, that's an interesting thing. Um, but I just, I want to speak personally for a moment that when I was, uh, when I was young, when I was in sixth grade, I was diagnosed, uh, with, with leukemia as well. Um, I had ALO leukemia and it was going to be a two and a half year prognosis. So that, uh, basically my entire middle school would be wiped out The you know, from sixth grade to eighth grade, uh, I would just be the cancer kid. And, um, at least that's what my brain told me when I was 11. Uh, but I remember going to 5C at uh, University Hospitals, it's now called, and uh, that was the you know the children's section like sector for for oncology, and uh, they had a cockpit pole position arcade game. So if you're listening, you don't we're talking about arcade games and pinball machines, you have no idea what I'm talking about. When I say a cockpit uh, pole position, what it is, it's a racing game and you sit inside this, uh, you know, like wooden, uh, I don't know, little little car uh, and you, uh, you know, play a racing game. And I remember every time I would go up for treatment and I might be up there for uh, in three days, uh, as soon as I'd get up there, I just like, check in. Yeah, cool. Draw my blood. I would ignore all of the stuff, all of the pain, all of the crap that was happening because I knew that I was going to go and play this game. Um, and it truly was this sort of like out of world escape for me. Um, and you guys have managed to do this in a manner where it's affecting 
thousands of people um, on a daily occurrence uh, where it's not just the, you know, the kids who are going through something. It's, you know, the doctors who need an escape. It's the nurses who need an escape. It's the parents who need an escape. Um, and you're ensuring that these things are are, are working. Um, I do want to, I want to bring it back though. You talked about how this was founded um, and it was founded because somebody had donated a pinball machine at a uh, at a hospital, and it was kind of a one and done step, but there was so much more to do for that. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about this like magnificent Spider-Man machine that uh, lit the entire organization up? In the very beginning, a friend of mine found a uh, pinball machine that was uh, located at a uh, local children's hospital in the oncology ward. And she was taking a tour of the facility and seen this pinball machine that was dark and um, wasn't being played in the family room. So she inquired about it, and they were saying that they were trying to find someone to, to fix this machine for um, over nine months at that point. So she texted me at that point and said, uh, there's a broken machine in the children's hospital, Um would you like to take a look at it? I'm like, yes, yes. Uh, have them reach out to me. So a couple of days later, we had uh, someone reach out from the hospital saying that we heard you were the person to go to. So they told me that it was a, um, what was it? A 2007 Spider-Man made by Stern. And this was uh, like three years after the fact. Um, it was actually November of 2011. So the machine was on site for about two and a half years. So I go there with uh, basic cleaning supplies as you would of a game of this. Uh, you know, uh, it was relatively new. It was only a couple of years old. Uh, so I took basic cleaning supplies and rubbers, uh, you know, things that I thought they would need. So I show up there and the play field is just pitch black with filth. Uh, there's like a graphite, um, like sludge dirt, you want to call it, that uh, covers the play field. And it was just, it was in um, horrible shape. It was played so much without any maintenance being done since its inception that it couldn't play anymore there was things that were um keeping it from you know uh, starting a new game so at that point i i realized as soon as i seen it that i could not work on this machine in a sterile environment um, i would be black as soon as i touched it my hands would have this uh, graphite grease on every uh part that touched the machine so I had to convince them of allowing me to take it off site uh, to my workshop so I could give it a, uh, I needed to strip every single piece off the play field and just rebuild everything. So we needed a, a time and, you know, parts for it. But the, the thing is, is I'm rolling this thing out. I have it on the card. I'm taking it down the elevator there was a family that seen me doing this and they stopped me and said, what's happening to our machine? And I was really taken back by their possession 
you know, of this pinball machine. And that was the first eye-opening moment was how much they cared for this machine. And the person, um, it was actually the father, he felt really bad because he thought he was the one that, you know, broke the machine. And I reassured him that, um, no, you know, it was a, a combination of it just being played without, you know, proper adjustments. And I reassured him that we would have it, um, you know, back in time for Christmas. So I took it back to the shop and I actually did these videos. Um, it's actually still out there, Southwest Florida Pinball Avenue, I believe uh, was a blog. And I did videos of uh, me just ripping apart this machine. And I needed the specialized parts for the Spider-Man that only Stern could give me. And uh, Gary hates when I say this, Gary Stern, the owner of the company, but um, I talked to him while he was at a show. I showed him photographs of uh, what I was looking at uh, on the play field. And um, this machine received 21,332 plays in uh, about two and a half years, which is amazing. Uh, operators out there, if they had that many plays on it, they would be quite happy, um, you know, with that number of plays. So, you know, that was another piece of the puzzle that started me thinking, how could this happen? It was in a, a family room. How could it receive over 21,000 plays in this short amount of time? So Gary uh, Stern seen this and he was uh, willing to donate uh, the parts that we needed for this machine. I met uh, Marco Specialties also. Um, you know, they donated the, the pinballs and the rubbers and the LEDs uh, uh, for the machine. So the community pretty much raised up uh, to help us. We were doing uh, fundraisers. Uh, it was called uh, Save the Spider-Man for the Kids. Uh, that was the very first Facebook campaign that we did. And it was just to raise money so we could uh, afford uh, the parts that weren't being provided. And I knew that the maintenance was going to have to uh, be done by myself. Um, every five weeks, I go in there and take a look at the machine because, again, a pinball machine is similar to like a car. You know, you have to do routine maintenance. If not, uh, the car is going to cease to function. You have to rotate your tires, keep the uh, the tires aired up, change the oil. You know the basics. It's the same thing with the pinball machine. There's a, it's a mechanical device that needs, um, you know, maintenance to it. It needs um, adjustments and uh, just some tweaking along the way. So it took. Uh, 112 hours for us to uh, rip down, uh, rebuild, and return the, the machine. And again, our goal was to do it in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, and have it back in time for uh, the Christmas holiday. So when we were returning it, uh, I pulled it out of uh, you know my SUV, and as soon as 
the family seen it, they were following us and applauding. I mean, the kids were jumping up and down and the parents were super excited that their Spider-Man returned. This was their game. And they were super happy uh, that it was returning. So, you know, we had all these, you know, moments where all I had to do was combine um, this information. So when I would return for the maintenance, uh, again, I would receive this testimony from the small patients. They would come up and I would always offer for them to hold the, the pinballs in their hands and they would hold them like precious little eggs that were going to be dropped and broken. And I always thought that was, you know, pretty funny uh, that these metal ball bearings that could be thrown across the room without receiving damage and they were holding them like they were these precious jewels in their hands. And they just loved uh, looking in uh, the coin door, the front door of this machine, and they could see uh, everything underneath the machine. They could see the wirings and the lights and um, just a fascination through their, their eyes. Um, and then the parents would come up and say how much they needed it. And they would say, you know, after they put their child to bed on a certain evening, they would go down there and relieve their stress uh, by playing pinball. And the one time, this is a, a funny story. I had a nurse uh, run in. Um, she seen me arrive for the maintenance and she told me not to move. The doctor wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what did I do? You know, what did I do wrong here that the doctor wants to talk to me? So he comes in, and the first thing that he asked was, uh, who keeps taking down this high score? <laughs> so, you know, I had to confess that it was me. Um, you know, I would test play, and I'm doing finger quotes, test play the machine. After I uh, cleaned it up, I wanted to make sure that everything was working proper, and the best way to do that is to actually start and play a game. And I had a chance to actually take down his high score and put it in my initials. So he was really upset about this. And I told him, hey, it, it is elevating your gameplay. So he's seen, you know, uh, what I was mentioning. And it it uh, pretty much made him feel better that he was becoming a better player. But, you know, in that moment, I realized that the doctors were really enjoying this and they needed it. And he actually shared with me when he gets a small patient and, you know, their family in there, he rounds them up around this pinball machine and breaks the ice by playing the game of pinball, something that he enjoys. And it, it breaks that tension and, and it builds that bond uh, with the child in their their family. After returning this machine and doing the, the maintenance, you know, at this time, I'm an avid uh, tournament player as well. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm traveling the state of Florida. There's other children's hospitals in our state. And here I'm in uh, Fort Myers. So I'm thinking, okay, there's probably a children's hospital in Tampa. And I was aware of that one. There's probably one in Jacksonville, Tampa, or uh, I mentioned Tampa, Orlando, Miami, Tallahassee. So I'm thinking, yeah, there's probably five more uh, children's hospital. 
so my goal at that time was to raise enough money and to be able to ask my friends in Jacksonville, hey, if we place a machine in your children's hospital, can you, you know, do the maintenance similar to what I'm doing in my hometown? And that's what the charity focus was on. But me coming up with that goal before I actually did the research on it was uh, something that was an eye-opening moment. I found out quickly that at that time there was 14 uh, children's hospitals just in our own state. So I'm like, oh, goodness, I'm going to have to you know, really get serious about this if we're going to do 14 machines because, you know, it went from 25,000, you know, 5,000 for each machine at that time and placing them, it became, you know, a huge number. You know, it came, a, you know, a mountain to climb. So as a business owner, it just made sense for me to incorporate and the charities actually uh, Project Pinball Charity Group Incorporated. And we uh, filed for our paper uh, paperwork through the IRS to be recognized as a 501c3 uh, charity so we could uh, function as a uh, charity entity. So it allows us to take in donations to help expand um you know, our, our charity's mission. And we started getting inquiries of outside Florida. Can we do this in San Francisco? Can we do this in Chicago? Can we do this in New York? And me not wanting to say no to, you know, something this dynamic and positive and beneficial, I said, yes. So, you know, that really you know, uh, kicked it into a different level, um, gave us a new focus from just fixing one machine to just placing pinball machines in the state of Florida to becoming national. And there was two things that happened to really, you know, cement that this charity is just super dynamic. One is I was invited to the, the Pinball Expo of uh, 2014. And Rob Burke comes up to me, um, you know, just uh, one of the afternoons that I was there. And he says, I would love for you to talk about the charity. Would you like to get up on the stage at the banquet and, you know, uh, tell everybody quickly, you know, in um you know, what the charity is about. And without thinking about it, I said, yes, you know, I would, I would do that. I never been to a banquet before. I did not know what I was agreeing to. So I show up for the banquet and it had to be 225, 250 people um, in the banquet hall. And it wasn't just the, the hear what the charity had to, to deal with not at all we were just an afterthought they were doing a, a, a hall of fame inductions uh lyman sheets was being inducted that year um a couple couple other people but it was this great ceremony 
Paul Ferris, uh, the famous artist of the, the ballet machines, uh, he was a, such a great artist. He was given his life story. And I'm looking around this room and I see all these people that I respect. All their machines, I really enjoyed and I enjoyed the passion that they put into these uh, machines. They were, you know, uh, as an engineer, I knew uh, what it took to, you know, bring their passion into this machine. It was, it wasn't a, a job that they were getting paid to do. They were just, you know, dedicating their life and hard hours in the, you know, uh, just sweats uh, to make these games. And I started to get really nervous. You know, I'm looking around and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, there's all these people that I just respect immensely. And all of a sudden I get called up on stage and I'm like, man, you know, I don't like to go script. I like to speak from my heart or you know, when I'm thinking of that moment. And the first thing I thought of is how much passion that these people in this room put into this, you know, industry and finger quotes, um, because this was a game that they enjoyed making and a, a game that I enjoyed playing um, these machines. So the first thing that I said is, you know, I love uh, all the passion and hard work that you put into designing these games. And I want to show you how we're giving this passion back to people that could really need it. And, you know, I'm getting kind of choked up because, you know, as I speak those words, because that's what our charity tries to do is, you know, show people why these machines are needed. And I did my short little, you know, uh, description of, you know, what I'm talking about here, how the charity started. And, you know, I stood uh, up and I was leaving and Paul Ferris was a wrestler and he put me in a huge bear hug and I couldn't even breathe. Here's a guy I never even spoke with before. And he uh, said in my you know, air as he's holding me in this bear hug that he just loves, you know, uh, everything that we were doing and just keep it up. This was a complete stranger that was showing me the emotion that I was feeling. And before I could walk off the stage, everybody stood up in the room and just started applauding our efforts. And, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, here these people are accepting what we do. Um, you know, as a charity, they get it. So I walk out of that room, you know, feeling, you know, elevated like I never felt before, uh, pretty certain that, you know, this was a viable charity. This is something that we can move ahead. And a week later, I had something that added uh, to that as well. We had a parent um, call me up on the phone and wanted to express how much I scared her. <laughs> um, and I say that in a joking way because she wanted to, you know, express that she was terrified in this moment. We placed a 
a Star Trek pinball machine in the St. Louis Children's Hospital. And she was sharing with us how her son Brent was a outpatient at that time and he would have to go back uh, every three weeks for um, continuing treatments as an outpatient. And he hated it. He just did not like it. He would um, just hide uh, throughout the house. He would um, do everything he could to drag his feet and not want to go to his therapy. Uh, and rightly so. Um, the treatment that he would receive would make him very sick. He would receive such you know, heavy treatments that he would be um, very sick. He couldn't get out of bed. He um, was nauseated. Um, and that's putting it mildly. And he would be sick uh, three to four days um, after he received treatment. Who would want to go through that? Who would look uh, for that to happen? Say, you know, wow, this is great. I'm going to be sick for you know, this time and to that degree. So we scared her because she could not find her child in the house at all. Uh, she went through all the, the hiding spots and she looked out the front window of the house and seen that the, the van door was open. And she thought that was curious. She didn't think she left it open. So she walks out there and sure enough, her son is fully dressed in the, the passenger seat waiting to to be transported somewhere and she asked the question uh, do you know where you're going today and he's like oh yeah i just want to go back and play pinball and when she shared with that uh, those words with me it's like oh my god Knowing that he's going to be sick, he had a bright, you know, bright spot, a bright, you know, reason to go to the hospital, receive chemotherapy, knowing that he would be sick, he would be rewarded by playing pinball. So that kind of ties into what you were saying earlier, that you know, in the darkest of days, that, that light spots or the bright moments, that small moments of joy can really mean a lot. And it could really line up the darkness. And with her sharing that to me, it really, you know, really kicked the charity in high gear. And if you look at the first year, uh, you know, that was the first year that we really you know, did it, uh, I did it full-time as a volunteer. I was working, you know, uh, I know 80 hours a week easily just to make it happen. We started dedicating machines as money was coming in. And, you know, that's when we really showed up and said, we need to make this happen. And that was modest. Uh, we were still under 10 machines and now you know, with uh, 2024 being here, um, 
at the time of the broadcast, it's going to be 72 machines. So we're going to, you know, be on the road here shortly for Love Across America. We're going to do two more dedications. So, man, what a journey we had to, to get to where we are now. It's so. amazing. I, I want to, uh, I just, I want to be mindful of time and I want to make sure that we can kind of talk about what the modern uh, version or uh, iteration of Project uh, Pinball looks like. Um, you know, it's a, it's a team of three employees, yourself included. Um, and then you have, you have a board uh, with, with uh, Brad and Howard that are, that are doing amazing things, helping to coordinate um, all the, all the technical volunteering and, and, and the fundraising efforts. Um how what is what is Project Pinball structured like at this point? How um, I, I guess not only like how are responsibilities divvied up, but like where are you identifying room for growth or places that you wanna you wanna build into? Well, that's a, a great question. In the beginning, um, I was the sole person with the, the focus in the, the mission where we needed to get to. Other people did realize uh, what our mission was and they would help uh, maybe, you know, locally in their backyard to uh, help us to achieve our mission. Uh, meaning if we're in Chicago, uh, there would be, be uh, people reaching out to us saying, hey, we have a need for your charity here. And it would help us with a focus. But at that time, in the beginning, it was, um, you know, just a sole person. It was me uh, leading the charge. Um, we had Sierra come in as a volunteer uh, out of a local college. They would uh, require service learning hours, which I loved, and they would come in as interns. And Sierra was so dynamic, and she just demonstrated her passion uh, for what we did. She understood what we did as a charity. So when it came time for her to um, look for a job or uh, for employment, I knew that uh, she was the perfect person. She is uh, my right-hand person. Um, I mean, she is Project Pinball. Uh, she's super amazing. And if people talk to anyone at uh, Project Pinball Charity, they know of Sierra. I mean, she just has hands on with everything that I do and what the charity does. Um, we had um, Brad, and Brad could relate to, you know, certain experience in his life. So when he heard about the charity, he came on board and said what can we do and not only is brad brad is part of our our board but we have to thank his whole family uh sandy and uh christian and levi i mean they're big parts of uh our volunteer group as well um howard's been on board from the very beginning um he was one of the first people to donate to the spider-man uh, receiving funds for it to be rehabbed, the, the machine that started the charity. He was there. So Howard's always uh, found a way to elevate the charity, and it just made sense for him uh, to come on board. 
And then we just added Taj. Uh, Taj is a super caring, dynamic person um, that we knew that we had to bring her on board. And she's uh, like our marketing director. Um, but we can't limit her description to that because she wears so many hats. She's there uh, helping support everybody when they ask. It, it could be, you know, coming from myself or Brad or Howard, and she's just there dynamically helping elevate everybody. Um, we have the best functioning board out there. And I want to say that it's just not a board of uh, people with like-minded uh, values. I really think that we're a family um, when it comes down to it. And we have uh, the passion to be, to put behind this charity to elevate it. So our mission in the future is continually growing. And we had several phases in the very beginning, knowing, uh, knowing that we would have to be patient to, to grow into them, but now we're opening up those phases uh, to really elevate how we use a pinball machine to be dynamic and beneficial. We're uh, donating them to a uh, senior living communities in uh, rehab centers which we're using the older machines, which opens up a new door. We're doing adult care facilities, not only children's hospitals, but adult care hospitals. We're going to be donating to Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Uh, we donated to Camp Sunshine up in Maine. Uh, they're a place that helps with uh, therapeutic um, activities. They invite doctors. Uh, maybe a child is dealing with uh, leukemia. They invite the, the child and the whole family up there, and they have doctors which specialize in, um, you know, what they're going through to be there. So when I heard about that, I'm like, wow, that's amazing, the support that they offer. So we have a machine there as well. So... We're a lot bigger than what people are aware of. Uh, not only do we do Children's Hospital, Ronald McDonald Homes, but we do these other avenues as they are presented to us. So, yeah, we love the charity. And I like to say this as a, you know, I changed the quote a little bit, but it, it takes a village to raise a charity. Um, it's not just me. Um, you know, running this charity. I have a great uh, support. Um, not only do we have uh, Sierra and Taj and Brad and Howard, but we have a legion of volunteers out there. And they range from our volunteer techs that take care of these machines that are placed in these, uh, you know, foreign cities like, uh, you know, Los Angeles and San Francisco, Portland, um, we're up in Maine also, so we need uh, the people to support in, uh, these machines and do the, the maintenance, uh, routine maintenance. 
Um, but we have volunteers that are doing fundraising uh, for us in their community. And I think that's another thing that I want it to be known that when we raise money, when we say we go to uh, Tulsa or we go to Phoenix and you're holding fundraisers uh, for the charity, 100% of their donations go back to uh, Phoenix, say, uh, since we mentioned that. 100% of their efforts and their sweat and dedication goes back into their own community. And this allows us to take our local charity from Fort Myers, Florida, and, you know, plant it into Phoenix as a local charity. That way, every effort that they put in is benefiting and elevating their community. Because I believe there's a lot of people that want to do good, but sometimes they're discouraged by not knowing how. So if we give, give them the focus and say, you know, 100% of your efforts are going to return to your community for your uh, kids and families, I think they really enjoy that. And, you know, I think that's something unique about our charity that we're very transparent. We show exactly where the money is uh, coming from and where it's going to stay. So I love that about uh, our charity. It's great. And I want to, uh, I apologize for rushing this along, but I want to be mindful of time. Um, you know, there are a number of ways that uh, people can support Project Pinball. And, uh, you know, we, we, Daniel and I had a conversation before this about the fact that uh, Daniel may be the most humble individual I've ever met who, despite running a charity, uh, never wants to overtly say, hey, donate money to us. So I'm going to be that catalyst right now and say, I strongly encourage you supporting Project Pinball uh, in whatever way you feel comfortable. And it could be something as simple as sharing the message. Um, and if you are somebody who owns a pinball machine that you would be interested in donating to Project Pinball, you can reach out to them directly to do that. If you're somebody who has technical skills uh, and is interested in just saying, hey, if you need me, I'm a resource, reaching out's a great way. Um, and if you're somebody who has fiscal resources, if you're somebody who has money, one of the things that I, I love that you guys do is the game raffles. Uh, and for those uh, who are listening, who are like, game raffle, I'm in. Like, this sounds fun. What are we doing? Uh, whenever uh, there's a new game that uh, Project Pinball is able to get their hands on, uh, they will uh, do a raffle where uh, you can buy a ticket for a fixed price. Um, and there's a finite number of tickets. I think it's usually around 200. Um, and you can uh, buy a ticket for a set amount and they will draw a winner. And that person will win a brand new pinball machine. Um, and for those who are listening, who are kind of unfamiliar with the market, uh, a brand new pinball machine can cost uh, between six and well, a gazillion dollars uh, at this point, but about six thousand uh, on the low end for for a new machine. So uh, the ability to to donate uh, a fixed amount that is well under that, um, and then be able to have a chance to win is pretty cool. And I, I do want to point out that there are uh, a number of people that I know that have won these machines over the years. And uh, as I go to their game rooms and I see what they're like, oh, it's a Project Pinball one, and it's this this feather in their cap that they are just so proud of that not only were they you know, oh, I donated for for 10 different uh, raffles and I finally won one. Um, but uh, it's also just a cool way to 
to to kind of give back to the community, which I think is is really exciting. Um, but charities need things more than just money. Uh, they need effort, they need visibility, uh, and they need connections. So if you're somebody who is listening to this broadcast, uh, whether or not you're involved with the pinball community, and you're thinking to yourself like, oh, there's a there's a local organization that could benefit by having a game here, or, um, you know, hey, there's a local pinball club that maybe they're, they're unaware of what Project Pinball is doing, please uh, get the word out. Um, and also let the word come to you. Uh, if you, uh, you can visit uh, projectpinball.org to learn more about the organization. You can also follow them on X or on Facebook just to see what's going on. There's a newsletter as well. Uh, so there's a bazillion ways to, to get connected. And I just kind of want to uh, put it out there. Uh, Daniel, am I missing anything in the uh, in the hype machine that uh, any cogs or levers that I forgot to pull? Not at all. I think you pretty much covered everything. And the origin of the 50-50 raffle was um, back when I was younger, I would see the uh, the volunteer uh, fire station near us do a 50-50 raffle, and it, there was always so much excitement. I would see the churches do 50-50 raffles. And again, I'm very bad at, you know, asking uh, for money. I want people to recognize the value and come to the conclusion that they want to help the charity. So the 50-50 was a great way for me to promote my passion, which is uh, playing pinball. It allows a winner to uh, pretty much choose a machine, uh, a title that they would want, and have it delivered right to them. And it allows that other 50% um, to go to the charity and allow us to place a pinball machine. So if you do the math, it's it's uh, right now a pinball machine. The, the pro models are $7,000 and uh, the premiums are around 9500 But we do limited editions uh, pinball machines and they're, again, pricey. They're uh, $12,999. So let's say 13000 So there's a lot of people out there that um, don't have the means to purchase a new machine, but they could uh, jump in a charity raffle and support a charity that they uh, believe in. So I think it really helps out uh, to help grow our charity as well as maybe, uh, you know, grow our pinball community as well. Absolutely. Um, is there, uh, so I got, I got two final questions for you, Daniel. And the first one I'm going to put, this is on you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I always want to make space at the end of the show and just ask if there's anything that, uh, we haven't covered or any ideas that you kind of want to put out there before, uh, before we depart. Sure. That's, uh, like so many things come to mind. Um, you know, I always want to talk about the charity because again, I see, how it helps uh, the kids um, and their parents, because, you know, when we do the dedications, I wish everybody could be joining us uh, for these to see the pure joy that we deliver um, by placing a pinball machine. And that is my, my motivation out there. I want to, you know, share that. I want people to, uh, go out there and look up, you know, what we do and uh, get the input. They could go to GuideStar, uh, which is a charity that monitors charities. And I love that. 
you know, uh, there's a lot of charities out there that are, you know, hard on the other charities because sometimes they aren't as focused on their programs as they need to be. Um, and, you know, with a, a charity like GuideStar, they go out there and they really dig into the nuances of how the charity operates. And I'm proud of, um, you know, what we have out there. So I want people to do their homework and, you know, when it comes time to give in the charity, I would like to maybe uh, be, you know, on the, the front of their list uh, to help because our charity is elevated by uh, the people around us. We always rely on funding for these great things. And, you know, we soar higher and quicker uh, because of the support that we receive. I've got one final question for you. That's something that I promised I'd come back to, which is, uh, you know, I, I wanted to put in, so at some point we're going to talk about Daniel's uh, avid cycling, and I think we'll do that on a future episode. Um, but I want to talk about your grandkids for a second. And my question is, uh, is this, which is, you know, I, I think the theme of mentorship and leadership and, and self-reflection has come up a lot in this conversation. And I'm curious about uh, what what characteristics do you want your grandkids to see in you when they're when they're looking up to grandpa what are what are things that you want them to take away wow that's that's a deep question there Ryan. um there's so much that you want to achieve in the eyes of your grandkids you you want to be nurturing you want to you know as a parent former parent right or continuum parent you want to protect so I would like to, you know, teach them things that they would need for the rest of their life in a soft way where it doesn't seem like a lecture where they could see grandpa uh, living a life that they would like to mimic. I mean, it's tremendous pressure uh, on, you know, uh, mentors because you want to show the, the good of the world and not to frustration, because I believe that is found by individuals out there. So I always try to show the, the positive in everything that we do, the fun in just routine things, uh, try to elevate things. And, and I think that, you know, my grandkids, they just want, you know, time. They want to, you know, laugh and play. And when you get down to their level and you push Hot Wheel cars across the carpet, you know, they understand that, you know, you're part of their world. You're, it's not the other way around. You become, you know, part of their world. You're, you know, just integrated with everything. And, and the great thing about kids is, you know, there's no holding back. They're they're very emotional on, you know, what they feel and they share that. And you know, just seeing the pure joy of just you know picking up a, a grandchild and just you know putting them on your back as a piggyback or you know just acting like a horse or and having them laugh is just amazing how it just melts your heart.
Um, I mean, I think the innocence is there and needs to be, you know, supportive, not, you know, stifled. So I think there needs to be a balance out there. And as a parent, you try to do a lot. You try to do that balance. And I think that's the freedom as a grandparent. You don't have that. You know that, you know, your your sons and daughters are doing that full time. So you could open up and, you know, be the, the grandparent that's fun and light and you know, I, I enjoy that role. I really do. I I love my my kids, but you know, I love my grandkids. Uh, you know, in such a a different way. That's awesome. Well, Daniel, I wanna I can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that we can catch up soon and uh, and and have some further conversation. Well, thanks, Ryan. That was a deep conversation. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daniel and hearing about the intricacies of Project Pinball. I can't even begin to think about just dropping everything to start a charity, and I want to applaud uh, Project Pinball. I want to applaud Daniel, and I want to applaud the whole team because I think that they are just doing remarkable work, uh, not only uh, just in the sense that they're they're helping children and adults who are who are going through something difficult um but they're demonstrating that anybody is able to do this kind of amazing work and and be part of such an amazing team so uh daniel and and company thank you for all that you're doing if you're interested in learning more about project pinball and either spreading the word or donating or maybe trying to throw your name into a 50 50 raffle you can go to projectpinball.org once again it's Valentine's Day, or if you're listening to this, let's just pretend it's Valentine's Day. See how you can uh, extend yourself and, and demonstrate your care to somebody else. I dare ya. Our next episode drops on February 28th, and we'll be talking with Bill Lasher. Uh, Bill is a jur- journalist and author who has written such books as Eve of a Hundred Midnights, The Golden Fortress, and has a new book coming out called A Danger Shared. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation just learning about uh, the writing process in 2024 and where the modern state of journalism is, getting an inside look into uh, that beautiful balance between grit and hard work and uh, and seeing your visions real. So if you're interested in learning about journalism, if you're interested in learning about writing, uh, or if you just want to hear from a really cool author, please tune in on February 28th to your favorite podcast channel uh, with Meditations with Ryan Slomek. Equally, if you like the show, please share it, give it a review, spread some good vibes into the universe, uh, or follow me on social media. The World of Ryan Slomek is on Facebook and Instagram where you can get regular updates about the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, please make space for conversation because you just might learn something.